So Shona, I read an article in the Washington Post recently, and it was critiquing um, the decision to host Challenge Daytona down in Florida. And it was specifically highlighting the ethical implications of hosting such an event. And I read that and I thought about you immediately. So I texted you to say, hey, this might be a great topic for our next podcast. Absolutely. I think we really need to break it down, you know, what this means for the context and frankly, uh, whether this race actually happens or not, we need to really think about how is the context being affected and other people that are not athletes, what are they feeling, how are they impacted as a result of us descending uh, on a city or state even to have a little fun. All right, so we're going to talk about this after the break and make the connection between Challenge Daytona, COVID, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Join us. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, I realize that our listeners are probably listening to this recording uh, basically after it's happened, but we're recording before the race. (laughs) And so I I think it's important for us to think through, you know, what could be the implications if Challenge Daytona actually happens. But frankly, what are the implications of any larger races and how they descend upon cities and and what really happens to folks that are left there after we pack up our bikes, pack up our gear and we move on, what happens to those folks? And so I I think it's really important to think through regardless of whether Challenge Daytona happens. I agree. So I feel like we have two issues. Um, So you've got the pro race, which I think presents one issue that we can unpack. And that's about 40 professional triathletes, I believe, that are going to be attending the race. And then there's also approximately 2000 amateur triathletes that are going to be coming to Florida for this race, um, for this one and one and only, or I guess it's not one and only because there was also Ironman Florida that happened. So I guess we could also roll that in with this conversation too, because what does it mean to have an Ironman race in Florida also? So I'm wondering, what are you, what are you thinking? Like when I texted you and said, Hey, this could be a good subject for our podcast and some of those ethical implications, what were some of the first thoughts that you came up with? Well, right off the cuff, I immediately went to Native Americans, maybe because it was over Thanksgiving in in the United States. I don't know where I got that from, but you know, really it, it boiled down to another situation that feels similar to Native Americans being affected adversely, pillaged even, where you have white folks that discover their land, discover those individuals, and they leave them in many ways with lots of straight up garbage. You know, let's just be real, whether it is a virus, whether it is the pure environmental impact, um, whether they've left their money truly or not, what are the long standing impacts of descending, people descending from all over the world coming to this particular race? What is the impact on those that are probably the most vulnerable to begin with 
at Challenge Daytona, what does that mean for them? And so for me, it just gave me a Native American-ish feel to it that I did not care for. As much as I would love to be racing right now, um, I don't want to leave anything behind, especially for the for those that are um, already the most adversely affected, those that have the longest standing impacts. I'm even thinking too, I'm not a medical doctor at all, but I am thinking about the long-term impact impacts of COVID as well. We don't know yet. And so what does it mean? Are we going to find that in five to seven years that there's long-term impacts on people's organs? Or th There are just so many things that ran through my head, but my first thought were Native American communities that have been treated similarly. So what I'm taking from that is the influx of predominantly white people um, to a community and bringing potentially bringing the virus with them. And you have um, a significant number of essential workers who we know are disproportionately low income, people of color, specifically women of color. Um, and so those folks are being put at risk because of white people's desire to race, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it just felt kind of frivolous. You know, it's it's not like we're talking about, you know, people have to visit because there's someone who is ill in a hospital and they need to be there to support. Or, you know, I I love racing. It's I, I love it. I mean, I would do it every weekend if I could, frankly, if my body could hold up <laughs> to that type of uh, work. Um, but my my point is. It's, it's, again, a hobby. It's something that most of us, other than those 40 pros that we just talked about, the rest of us don't do this for a living, and it's not necessary. It's a hobby. And so I just think it's really interesting that it feels as if we are putting people's lives on another back burner, like we just keep relegating other people's lives, especially the most vulnerable, to a place that's not considered equally. Um, it, it just is a is problematic for me. And I just wonder, and I'm not a race director either, but I'm just wondering what was the thought process for those decision makers to come to a place where it's like, no, we're going to move forward with this race. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I just keep mulling all of that through because I realize they're losing money too. You know, they've paid for certain things that they can't get the money back, whether they have the race or not. People are probably talking about refunds, obviously, for, you know, getting their money back for registrations. I get the conundrum too, but what's more important here, I think we need to have an out loud conversation about what that decision-making process looks like as well. Well, and who's making the decisions, right? I actually don't know much about the challenge family and their races, um, but my um, suspicion, and that may be unfounded, and I should probably Google this, is that it's predominantly white people in charge of challenge, you know, much like it's predominantly white people in charge of Ironman. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so they're making these decisions about hosting a race that's absolutely likely um, affected by economic um, needs, right? I think that that's real. Um, but those economic needs of Ironman or Challenge are usurping the environmental and human impact in Florida specifically, which mm -hmm. is not doing well in terms of the virus, right? And, That's right. Um, you know, the governor there has not been fantastic in supporting public health, health measures. And so I just, I can't disentangle this decision to host a race from kind of class and race privilege. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, let's let's start from even some that we might want to consider privileged even in that area. You know, some people might think that the 40 pros that are going to race there are, you know, some of the most privileged 
athletes that will be racing. But, you know, even in this situation, this is what they do for a living. And I realize that, you know, folks may think, oh, this is glamorous, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they are elite. All they have is their name and their body <laughs> to mm-hmm. make an income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're having to choose between their health and making a living. And, and I think that should be something that's considered as well, you know, especially if they're an athlete that's, um, you know, maybe they have some issue that is high risk that we can't see because once again, you know, we don't want to stereotype, you know, b- ability. We may not know that, oh, that elite athlete ha- is diabetic, for example. We may not know that, um, but there are some inherent risks, whether you're at the top of your health or not you're making that risk and this is directly tied to their income as well. And they're the most privileged, I would say, as far as power, the most privileged triathletes competing on, they still have risks that they need to contend with. Yeah. And like you said earlier, the long-term effects of COVID are unknown, right? It's a respiratory disease. So you have, um, these professional triathletes in particular who are being put in that position to choose between their health and their income and perhaps could contract the virus and then their long-term capacity to earn money is forever affected, right? Um, I mean, I definitely Mm -hmm. know people who are runners, who are athletes, not at the elite level, but that have had COVID and are still struggling, right? Their breathing capacity is greatly reduced. Some of them have micro blood clots in their lungs. Like these are not um, small um, effects. And so it feels really troubling. And this is what the Washington Post article tried to highlight um, was what does it mean for Challenge Daytona and then the Professional Triathletes Association, right? The new um, PTO, I think is its acronym, you know, offering that $1 million prize purse, right? So there's some economic coercion happening there, right? And what a position Mm -hmm. to be in. Mm -hmm. What a position to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and so, you know, they're the most, we would, we could say the most privileged out of everyone that's affiliated with, with the race, but, you know, let's also think about, again, the context I'm thinking about, you know, those folks that are in the service industry, you know, where they're making meals, even, even if you're doing carry out, you know, they're still having to go mm-hmm. to work to make that mm-hmm. meal um, while you're racing, or they are working in the grocery store, or they're the folks cleaning your hotel room to make sure that it's spick and span and, and ready for you to stay there without risk, even at their own risk. And guess who those folks are? Women, mm-hmm. people of color, folks yeah. that are in a certain lower SES, um, whether they are, um, they have been in that socioeconomic status long-term, or even if it's short-term, this is a job on the side. They are still quite a bit at risk. And then they have to turn around and go home and possibly take what you brought to them back to their family, friends, loved ones, because they need to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that is another element that I think of constantly. And frankly, that's something that, you know, we have not had to think about, at least in our lifetimes, Lisa, around, you know, what are we bringing you know, everyone talks about the positives that we take into a city or county or a town that, oh, we're bringing in tourism money, et cetera, et cetera. What about all the other stuff that we really shouldn't be bringing in? And and COVID really sets, sets us up to think about that. What are we bringing in at the risk of others um, in ways that we have not had to examine our privilege in this way? You know, I've, I've mm-hmm. gone to, I don't know how many races I've gone, I've competed internationally, et cetera. 
I've not once ever stopped to think, oh my God, did I bring something from the States over to London when I'm doing the London Triathlon because someone may be at risk. Haven't had to think about that because we weren't in a world pandemic at the time. Now we are. Now we're being forced to think yeah. about it, which I think gives us a great opportunity to pull the curtain back and, and look at some demographics of folks that we probably just, we, we have, I'm not going to say probably, we have mm -hmm. taken for granted up to this point. Yeah. And so, I mean, certainly Daytona, the city of Daytona is, is struggling with the pandemic, like many cities across the US. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers specifically in Daytona, but it's the piece that you have 2000 odd um, triathletes and perhaps supporters of the triathletes. I know that challenge is limiting spectatorship, but that doesn't mean that the athletes aren't traveling with people. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, and so your point is so important that there is an impact to that. And um, we know that COVID um, or many people with COVID are asymptomatic. So testing your temperature, That's right. That's right. asking about symptoms doesn't catch, you know, half of it or a third of it. There's a significant percentage of people, right? So you're definitely, and you're in that space, in that stadium, Um you know, and they're saying that there's one in and one out. And so that makes it like entrance and exit. That makes it um, easier to navigate. And I feel like that makes it worse because you've got like a one entrance and one exit where thousands of people are funneling in and out. Right. Um, and I don't know. I just think about like you say, like I enjoy racing, but my desire to race should not be higher than my desire to not inadvertently infect another person. Like I don't, I can't get my head around that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you on that. Well, and you know, part of me thinks, you know, once again, not being a medical doctor, but just thinking through, you know, I, I think we're dealing with some contingencies here. Um, I heard, um, I've, I've been listening incessantly uh, to the interviews of president Obama and talk about his book and so forth. And I, I love how, I've had the privilege of hearing lots of different demographics of interviewers ask him similar questions from different angles. And one of the questions that uh, he's been asked about constantly was, you know, can you just help us to bridge the gap between those that think certain things are fact and the very same thing fiction? So, you know, if you're given a set of data from, it could be anyway, it could be from the CDC, it could be from Dr. Fauci himself and the data is either not taken seriously or it's, you know, COVID-19 is seen as a glorified flu. You know, I, I do think that there is a gamut of triathletes, human beings in general, but since we're specifically talking about endurance sport, I think there is a gamut of people who engage in the COVID-19 reality in different ways. There are some triathletes that I know that are so serious about it that they have not set foot in a gym since March. They have not set foot or in a pool since March. Some of them were too afraid to even do open water where it was socially distant. You know, they have taken it gravely seriously. I have a friend of mine who was talking about he's been traveling between Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina to find the right size weights for his home gym because he's decided that he's going to build up his home gym because he respects COVID-19. And so you have those folks. Then you have the folks that are kind of in the middle that are saying, oh, 
okay, I'll wear the mask, no problem, but I'm just not really taking it that seriously. Sounds like a glorified flu to me. If I get it, I'll be fine. I'm healthy. I'm fit. I'll, I'll make it through. And then you have other people that doubted it, it even exists. And so I'm just wondering, you know, as we think about what COVID-19 means for context, I guarantee you that there are triathletes from all across that gamut showing up saying, okay, I'm going to race and I, I, I will sign on the dotted line just like I do for every race that I'm taking responsibility for whatever may happen to me because of my decision to race. You have other people that's like, I'll see y'all in 2021. In fact, late 2021, I'm not racing anytime soon. And some folks that doubt it even exists. And so, Mm. you know, how do we hold all of them together? Because I guarantee you 2000 of those folks showing up, if if there is a race um, showing up fall all along that spectrum all along. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you talking there makes me just think I keep coming back to this individual responsibility versus community responsibility, right? And triathlon is an individual sport. It's one of the struggles I think with triathlon kind of becoming a a spectator sport in terms of kind of TV exposure, et cetera, is that it's, it's a hard sport to cover and kind of develop a fan base for because of that individual nature of it. And so you have, um, all these people making individual choices without perhaps the requisite attention to how those individual choices affect the community. So not only um, your immediate family, but the tri- other triathletes who will be there, their families, like you said, the essential workers, the people who are cleaning your hotel room, the people who are working in the grocery stores. Um, and we know, um, as you articulated, most of those folks, essential workers are folks of color or um, people who are low income. And so I just, it, I just keep coming back to this. And I actually read an article in the New York times that the Pope wrote, <laughs> um, which is kind of ra- mm. random to have um, mm-hmm. an op-ed by the Pope. Right. But um, right, I guess right. it's not random. It was just un- unexpected. And he was talking about how um, this um, perspective of personal freedom has become an ideology through which everything is viewed. And so any mm-hmm. restriction Um, whether or not that restriction is for the greater good is perceived as a violation or an assault on one's personal freedom. And I do, you know, and I, and I think that's such a problematic, problematic way to think about it. And so I'm thinking about this as I think about challenge Daytona or Ironman Florida and, um, there does just seem at both the kind of organizational level. So the people who put on the race, um, all the way down to the athletes, a lack of, awareness or understanding about the ripple, right? That you are not making this choice in a vacuum. Um, Your choices have consequences. And so I think the thing that bugs me the most, um, you know, is a lot of governors are saying people are adults. They are capable of making their own choices. They're capable of being responsible. Well, are they, right? Because we have right. so many people who, in my opinion, are not making responsible choices outside of sport, absolutely, you know, just absolutely. generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then I think about seatbelt laws. Well, you know, we have seatbelt laws because people were not wearing seatbelts and people were dying at That's like right. great right. rates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I feel like in many ways, it's not, it's, there's, almost a greater level of responsibility on the organizers of these races because they're serving up these opportunities that then put athletes in a position where they make that choice 
right? Because of selfish um, yeah. or self-interest, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair to put it all on the organizers, but I just, I feel like they, they take a big role here. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm going to make a big risk here at the risk of making athletes sound like children. You know, it, it sounds like <laughs> adults, it's your fault if you create an unsafe space for athletes that are not, that may not make a good decision for themselves and others. <laughs> like that's what it really feels like. And, and I don't know, it may feel, it may actually be that way or not. Um, but I, I think you're bringing up a great point is that, you know, if the, it, it kind of brings up this comparison in my brain between the race directors or the event coordinators and frankly, Biden, you know, President-elect Biden has said that he's really seriously considering making some national mandates around masking and, and some other things concerning uh, social distancing. Well, you know, some people may feel, okay, race director, it's going to be your fault if you set the stage for an athlete to even have the option of choosing to race in a compromising situation for themselves and others. It's, it has to be someone's fault, right? And I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but it has mm -hmm. to be someone's fault. And it sounds like we're setting it up for the race directors to be at fault, not the athletes who make the decision whether they're gonna click that button or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's complicated, right? So I want the listeners oh, to understand yes, that absolutely. this conversation is very complex and it, we're not here like to, we're not intending to place blame on race directors or say that they're irresponsible. It's not it. We're just wanting you to think about the kind of greater uh, co consequences in the community about the decisions that you're making related to race, all right? Um, relating to racing. And it does have an effect on race, right? Racial identity in terms of the disproportionate effects. Right, of right. 40 inch um, slip for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I think that there's, there's enough, you know, to go around in terms of who we think about, but it is a bit, you're oh, such a good point, Shauna, because if a race director doesn't put on a race, then the adult athlete doesn't get confronted with the choice. Right. right. Click the button. <laughs> right. Um, but don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Don't, Just tempt, don't me. Even tempt me. <laughs> but race directors need to make a living. So I absolutely understand that they're kind of, they're also in a tight spot, right? Hence the complexity of this. But then you're like, yeah, you're tempting athletes who are only perhaps thinking mostly of themselves and their desire to race and not about what does it mean if I get on a plane and I travel to another state, right? When so many people can be asymptomatic. And then I'm engaging with people in that community, um, most of whom um, are serving me in some way, right? So they're likely going to have less financial resources, perhaps less access to healthcare. Um, you know, so I want listeners to understand that connection, right? That what you do and the choice that you make, either as a race director or an individual athlete signing up for a race, matters more than just your, like satiating your desire to race. Well, you know, I, most people know me, I, I am, I would consider myself a spiritual person, not a religious one necessarily, um, as a Christian, as a Protestant. And the verse that always comes to mind when I hear this type of thing, there's a specific verse that talks about, yes, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So just because I have the right to do it doesn't mean that it's beneficial to myself or to others. And we we don't want that. And, and in fact, I wonder if that goes directly contrary to what 
President Obama talks about as this great experiment, you know, the experiment of we want everyone to live in peace, knowing that they have their own options, they have their own choices that they can make, and everyone can live in different ways in the same space. Well, what happens when your decisions directly affect entire communities? And it's almost a point of privilege to deny that that even happens. It's almost a point of privilege. Mm. It, it is a point of privilege to say, like, I know right now I can walk out right now and not wear a mask. In fact, I would prefer it. I could understand folks better. <laughs> you know, all those things. I would prefer to walk out of my home right now and not wear a mask. But I realize that my small inconvenience can positively affect others. I'm okay with that. I Yes, it is permissible for me to go certain spaces without a mask, but is it beneficial? And even um, some versions of that scripture talks about, is it edifying? Does it build up anyone else as a result of what I've done? I'm hoping that it's edifying to other people, that people look at me and hopefully others as a compassionate person to say, oh, she's just not you know, she's not self-centered. She's not selfish. She is a community thinker. I strive to be a community thinker all the time, even though I fail daily. But how am I edifying people around me by muddling through this small inconvenience? And people don't think that way. They think it's mm -hmm. my right not to wear a mask. So I'm not going to wear it no matter who it kills. Literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It happens every day. It's been happening, at least in in my state, <laughs> I think we went to uh, mandatory masking in late March, early April. There are still folks that I see out and about that don't have one on. They, in fact, will get frustrated with, you know, staff in a store because the staff member says, look, our governor has said what he said and he meant it. You cannot come into Target without your mask on. You cannot go to the grocery store without it. And the people that have the audacity to argue with individuals who are trying to prioritize community is mind boggling mind-boggling and so we have to question ourselves in the same way in endurance sport yeah and i think this um conversation for me really highlights how triathlon or endurance sport broadly isn't a bubble right and we've said this on a number of our podcasts and that um mm -hmm. the quote-unquote outside world <laughs> um affects triathlon and endurance sport and triathlon and endurance sport affect the quote-unquote outside world right like so the decision that you're making to race or not race, to hold a race or not hold a race, right, cannot be made in isolation. And then you have mm. to think about that in the context of these social categories and social stratification, particularly in a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting um, communities of color and low-income people and people who have limited access to healthcare or people with chronic um, illness, um, older adults, that sort of thing, right? Like, so, yeah, so they're not walking around, I'm not going to wear a mask because that's my personal freedom to not wear a mask. Um, it's not that I don't understand that point of view. I just think it's really limiting. And then I think, well, what about my personal freedom to not get sick with COVID-19, right? Um, and, and society doesn't, can't work that way, right? Like one of the founding principles of the United States was individualism, of course, right? And I don't necessarily disagree that that's a bad principle, but not to the point of, um, mass community virus spread, right? Like there's a give and yeah. a take here, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, live individually while also in community, right? So I don't know if you remember, and this is many years ago when I first started DEI um, consulting and training and so forth, there was this model of, you know, we talked about the United States as, as a melting pot for many, many years. 
And then that visual changed from a melting pot to, ironically, a salad bowl, if you will, where, yes, you can still see distinctly every vegetable, everything that you put in that salad, but it's still in community. It's still in one bowl versus being irrecognizable. And I think, mm. you know, we're missing the whole salad bowl point of this whole masking process, you know, and, and given that we're adding to a greater whole. Now, what if you were that rotten tomato that was thrown thrown in the salad, and now you spoiled the whole damn salad? That's what's happening with people that are not wearing masks, that yeah. are not washing their hands, that are not doing what they need to do. Yes, we want Americans to, or or United States citizens, um, to hold fast to their individualism. Now, when that individualism starts to challenge the public physical health of everyone else, that's a problem. That is very Columbus-ish to me, and I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with it as an individual, but I'm not okay with living in community with people that don't care whether I live or die or whether my family lives mm -hmm. or die, quite mm -hmm. literally. Yeah, and I think that this is definitely a racialized conversation too, right? Because a lot of the, um, the care and concern over spreading the virus has been muted um, particularly among white folks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so as uh, Black and African-American people, um, Indigenous Native American people, Latinx people have been hospitalized and dying at much higher rates, um, you know, attention to that discrepancy has been minimal, right? It's certainly out there. Absolutely. But, um, I wouldn't say that the average white person on the street is really thinking about, well, what is... Um, what is my choice to not wear a mask? What is my choice to go travel from my state to another state to race? What is the effect going to be um, in terms of hospitalizations, virus spread, death, that sort of thing? I don't think that connection is being made because it might feel like too mm -hmm. much of a jump. And I think it's imbued with privilege, right? Like you had said. Oh, I haven't had to think about it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, because you're not moving as a white person, you're not necessarily moving in those circles where you have a family and three of them have died. Right. That's it. That's um, it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a, a colleague of mine. Um, he's a Latino male um, and his grandfather died from COVID and he, in his workplace, he's surrounded by people who don't believe that the virus is real. Right. And so um, their kind of CEO got very sick with it. Um, you know, he's had a family member pass and he's kind of in this environment where there are people still saying it's a conspiracy or it's just like the flu. Right. And so that's very, very frustrating. Um, and, you know, a good number of his colleagues are white. So it, it feels very discouraging, um, I think. And so I, I keep coming back to this challenge Daytona and whether or not it'll happen um, this weekend and what that means. Oh, but Lisa, I, I feel like I'm about to launch into a, a different podcast, but I'm going to stay right here for a second. <laughs> um, is that, you know, okay, so you brought up the whole community aspect of things. I am so with what you just said, because what I'm thinking about is, and you let me know, because you're a better, um, you're a better academic when it comes to the trajectory of of white identity development, particularly. Um, but I feel like that's part of the conundrum too, though, is that white folks do not have a tradition of thinking in community. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe uh, definitely individually and maybe somewhat into family, but 
definitely not in community. Meaning when I see another white person that we're in this thing together versus if I'm, which has happened countless times, if I show up to a race of 2000 and I only see seven visually black people, then I'm looking at them like we're in this thing together. I'm watching your back while you're in the swim. You watch mine. When I see you on the bike, you see me on the bike. It is a very communal living experience as a black American, whereas I would not necessarily say the same thing for a white American. And so therefore, you know, when I (laughs) this this gives you my bias here, when the pandemic first hit and Dr. Fauci and everybody else is on the news telling people to wear your mask, wash your hands. Everybody runs to the store and goes to buy their Clorox spray and wipes and all this other stuff. And as a woman who is the child and the grandchild of janitors, I'm looking at this like, um, hello, what have y'all been doing up to this point? Because this has been my mm-hmm. life, you know, other than a mask, not too much is changing for me. You know, even <laughs> I was joking with my girlfriends the other day to say, look, I already had a stash of Clorox before all of this popped off. Okay. Nothing was a major change for me other than the social distancing and wearing a mask. But as far as cleanliness and so forth, that was not a big leap for me because I am thinking mm-hmm. about others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only am I thinking about others, but also I'm just thinking about people in my family and prior to that did live in, you know, some substandard situations or they lived where they had a larger family where they had to keep things clean because people couldn't afford to get sick because some people had insurance where others didn't. It's very top of mind for me as a black person. And I didn't need a pandemic to put that top of mind um, as far as how I fit into a bigger puzzle of community. Mm -hmm. I can't say based on what I know, even in the scholarship, that that's the case for white folks or white communities. I can't say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to re re um, familiarize myself with the literature, but I would say like on a bell curve, right, where the, the most people fall in the middle of the bell curve for kind of white Americans that they do tend to lean more towards the individual versus the community. And you also, you have exceptions to that, obviously. Um, And it's the same for white Western Europeans too. Right. Mm, Um, mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. there, there is this absence of um, an understanding about how the choices I make affect others, but particularly like, so broadly, but particularly as a white person, how are my choices and decisions affecting people who are already marginalized mm. in this country? Yeah. Right. Yep. Like there's that, that kind of like next layer of analysis I think is missing. And I don't think that's necessarily um, um, mean or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, pre like <laughs> pre-motivated. That's not, that's not it. What is Pre- the premeditated? Yes, thank you. Yeah, premeditated. You um, uh-huh, I don't think yeah. it's that, right? But I think it's a social socialization, right? Like, if you work hard, you're going to make it. Anyone can make it here if they try hard enough. You know, you you only can protect yourself. Like, people are out to get you. Like, look after number one. I don't know all those kind of like um, words mm-hmm. and motivation phrases that come with a capitalist country right oh, yes. that is oh, white yes. dominated founded on uh liberalism and individualism i think um is such a huge influence and i see that with triathlon and individual endurance sports right so ultra run, ultra running 
right? Not necessarily right, like soccer, right. right? Which is more team oriented, mm-hmm. but triathlon is like a solo sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you just have, it's almost like that's on steroids, I think. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and the thing is, you know, you're bringing up a great point. I know we got to wrap, but, you know, I'm just thinking about, you're reminding me of the year when New York City had to cancel the marathon. And instead of the marathon, they actually had people that were doing community work because some people had already arrived, you know, the week before they had already arrived ready for the race, et cetera. Um, Or people, you know, it would cost more to cancel their flight or their train or what have you than to actually come and, and serve in some way. And so many of them actually did come and serve and they gave blood and they volunteered and they did all types of things. And they were doing things in benefit of the city, given that there was a major storm. I cannot remember which, uh, which storm actually hit what hurricane it was. It was something, um, some type of major weather event. And so they got there and they gave, and they did all of these very charitable things that were very considerate of the community. And, you know, again, my point goes to why do we need to get to such a drastic place before Mm -hmm. people consider Mm -hmm. community? It always seems that it has to be in proximity. It, it has to touch my life in some way. It has to, it, it touched my life. I'm not able to do this marathon. And even as I, and I'm not saying that everyone is performative, but some people are, you know, it's my grand opportunity to do something big and stick my chest out on the way home to say, no, I didn't get to run the marathon, but I gave 17 pints of blood, et cetera. Well, you know, why does it have to take a major weather event, a pandemic, general proximity for people to care about other people's lives? I don't get it. I'm not sure I even want to get it, but it's something to be said when we have to have a pandemic to do it Mm -hmm. and basically from what we've said, Lisa, is that sometimes even a global pandemic doesn't even get people there. No, no. Your point about proximity, I think is a great way to end, right? Like for all the um, white, largely affluent athletes that are going to descend upon Florida or did descend upon Florida for Ironman Florida, right? Their proximity to the devastating effects of the pandemic in terms of communities of color, low-income people, women, um, that they're not making that connection because there isn't proximity. And that is certainly probably another podcast because that is in itself quite troubling. Um, And I'm sure there's a lot of literature written on that, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I just feel like there's... um, there's privilege at play here, um, particularly whiteness, particularly class. There's self-interest um, and this this lack of thought about how do my actions trickle down or trickle across and have um, more devastating effects on people that I never interact with because I'm so I'm so mm-hmm. used to people serving me. I'm so used to people. Um, Mm -hmm. in hotels or in supermarkets or in other places, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Serving me that I don't even give them a second thought. Right, right. So I guess, you know, Lisa, you're bringing up a great point. So if we circle back on that proximity piece, because we've talked about context and endurance sport and how it can, you know, sometimes completely devastate a context, you know, I guess our homework would be to just consider constantly, those demographics of fellow human beings with which we may never have proximity and how we how we can make them top of mind. 
Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. for those folks, the, the people that clean your room at that race that you may never see or never meet have families and they might've come into your room in a hazmat suit to clean the damn thing so that you would have the privilege of doing your hobby when it's their living. How can we continue mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. um, keep, keep those folks at top of mind without proximity? thinking about others yeah. um, and, and how, and how it affects folks. Um, I'm going to give you a little quick example before we get off, but um, um, Lisa, I'm sure you saw the Facebook pictures and so forth. And I had a little getaway for two or three days and I really enjoyed it. Um, I made a lot of phone calls and asked a lot of questions about COVID-19 restrictions. And some of it was about obviously me contracting something possibly, but also I was asking questions because I know other people want to enjoy their holiday and how many people am I going to interact with? What about the cleaning service? They don't need to do turn down for me. Just I'm, I'm fine. I don't need those things. And so I asked a lot of those questions. Um, part of it was trying to find that balance of they need revenue to run a business because I don't want those folks to lose their jobs, but I also don't want the very same folks to be sick. So when I show yeah. up and, you know, and I'm not saying I did it perfectly, but it, I was very cognizant of it yes, I want to come and give a black business money. Um, but I also don't want um, housekeeping to come and turn down my room for three or four nights. And the day that I leave, if I have it, I'm going to give a huge tip, despite the fact that you, I didn't want you to do as much service as you're trained to do. How can we think about those folks in ways that don't mm-hmm. require such drastic measures to bring them to our attention? They're kind of the invisible folks, you know, the invisible workers um, that we want to support. Um, but keeping them just as safe as we want to be. Um, how do we do that? And I'm going to keep looking for ways to do that before our next podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep thinking on that. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end, Shona. Challenge to the listeners. Um, keeping folks who our society renders invisible and our whiteness for the white people listening to this renders invisible. How do we keep them top of mind? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So um, instead of challenge Daytona, it sounds like we're saying challenge unfazed here. You know, <laughs> how do our all of our uh, followers uh, continue to challenge themselves in this way? It's, it's pretty tough and complex. So um, we're going to keep trying. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>